It seems like someone is always predicting the return of Christ. William Miller got it wrong. His prediction was dubbed, quote, the great disappointment. Some followers of his would branch off to form a cult we now know as the Seventh-day Adventists. When Harold Camping miscalculated September 6, 1994, he went back and redid his math. When more predictions failed in 2011, first in May, and then again in October, he received a lot of press. You may recall this guy. He also received something called an Ig Nobel Prize. That's I-G-N-O-B-E-L. It's satire. This award came, quote, for teaching the world to be careful when making mathematical assumptions and calculations. Joanna Southcott claimed she was pregnant with the Messiah. He would be born on Christmas Day of 1814. Turns out she was not pregnant, and she died on the day of her prediction. Popular years, of course, get a lot of attention. The Pope of the time predicted January 1st of the year 1000. More recently, many predicted January 1st of 2000. And about 10 years from now, if you think about it, it'll be exactly 2,000 years since our Lord conducted his ministry on earth. I bet many will celebrate by predicting his return. Now, it's not wrong to wonder when Jesus will return. In fact, that can be quite helpful for us. That can spur us on to holiness and to godliness. It could be an encouragement to us, giving us joy and giving us hope. It can yield very positive effects in our lives. In fact, in today's passage, a few disciples will wonder about the Lord's return, and our Lord will answer two questions about end times events so that you and I can live in light of the end. Now, these type of events grip attention, do they not? Both the Old Testament and then again in the New, they they give us these breathtaking scenes. There's spectacular characters and fierce judgment. What do we experience as we hear about the bottomless pit? Out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and they were not permitted to kill anyone put the torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. What do we see when we read of the holy city Jerusalem coming down from the sky, 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles deep? What do we feel when Jesus declares, well done, good and faithful servant? You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Enter the joy of your master. 
eschatology, or the study of end times, it produces wonder and mystery and hope. It also produces many different interpretations. Christians hold to widely different views on these events, and all of them have their strengths and all of them have their problems. Now, our text today will have multiple verses with many different views. If you and I were to, to, to hike a trail, and it was this chapter, Matthew 24, we'd find many different trails branching off from different directions. So are the interpretations of this passage. So I say all that to present to you a version or a view with respect to other ones that differ. I do want to handle Matthew 24 and 25 more or less together over a few sermons. This morning on the front end, Jesus is going to deliver a teaching on end times events. I want to do the same. I want to give to you what what Jesus gave his disciples through Matthew 24. But then as you get out of 24 and into 25, he then delivers the application how you and I ought to live in light of his teaching. So in my opinion, I think the best application of this is really yet to come next Sunday and the Sunday after and so on. But that doesn't leave us off the hook today, does it? Last week in Sunday school, we discussed the so what question. As we hear sermons, we ought to be asking, so what? We also mentioned you're not supposed to yell that at me as I'm talking. But instead, we're asking this of ourselves as we're reading the Word, as we're hearing it preached, so what? How does this apply to my life? Each of us ought to do that today, nonetheless, though it's heavy in teaching, maybe less application. So I want to begin with the first three verses of Matthew chapter 24. These are really important verses. These verses are going to then set the stage for everything Jesus says in all of Matthew 24 and then in 25. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Oh, verse 1 sets the scene. Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Just outside of Jerusalem stands a mountain. Olive groves populate the side of the mountain, and adjacent to this mountain, just picture yourself standing on the mountain directly across the valley, and all of its beauty and all of its splendor rises up from the ground of the temple. It's an enormous display of beauty covering the horizon. It's spectacular in its white stone, overlaid with ornate gold. You almost had to look away from it when the sun hit it just right. You could smell the aromas of of smoke as sacrifices fill the air. Now, at this time, the temple had been under construction for about 40 years. Herod, the ruler of the Roman occupiers, he built the temple then both as a monument to himself as well as a way to win Jewish favor. 
It spanned the size of 12 football fields to picture its length, and thousands of worshipers could pack inside its gates. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the time, writes of the temple, quote, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. It was a a masterpiece of, of architecture and engineering. Now, the Gospels of Mark and Luke also record this conversation. You and I are reading from Matthew. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, the disciples are marveling at the temple complex. Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And in Luke 21, some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings. And in the midst of this conversation, all of the admiration, Jesus speaks, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The temple would cease to exist. The purpose forsaken. Just recall back the blistering words of our Lord in Matthew 23. Religion had become nothing more than a sham system. And the temple is in the middle of it. The Jewish establishment had defiled it. The Romans would destroy it, and Jesus will replace it. What a prediction this must have been. What a shock to the disciples. This is one of those statements that it hardly ends a conversation and you move on to something else. Rather, it begins a conversation. And true enough, his disciples come to him. Mark records there were four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers. And they asked Jesus two questions. Very important. Remember, all that follows in Matthew 24 and 25, it comes from these questions. They provide what I would call the fence rails so that we can accurately interpret and understand these chapters. Jesus answers their questions. These questions, what are the questions? When will these things happen? Specifically, when will the destruction of the temple complex take place? Interestingly, Matthew does not include the answer to this question. Luke does. In 21 verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And that came about in 70 AD when Romans came and destroyed the temple. Verse 2, not one stone was left upon another. Matthew's record is going to focus on the Lord's answer to question 2. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? A better translation, though it's a little awkward in English, sounds like this. What will be the sign of your coming and end of age? You see, that first question that they asked dealt specifically with the statement that Jesus made in verse 2, the destruction of the temple. That makes sense. But their second question here deals with the Messiah's coming and the end of the age. 
That's because they were looking back to the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy. And Old Testament prophecy doesn't lay everything out really nice in some kind of beautiful color timeline as we have today. It often grouped prophecies together regardless of the gaps between the events. It's almost like you and I looking at at mountains from the ground. They may look like one is directly behind another, but when you look at them from the side or cross-section, there's a gap between the mountains. The mountains represent events, and there are gaps of time between them. Now, entitled the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to lay out his answer. He's going to discuss the approach of the end, the arrival of the end, and the advent of his return. Verses 4 through 8, it's the approach of the end. Jesus answers and says to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. These are the signs of the coming of the end. Jesus begins by clarifying when the end will not come. He's identifying in these verses events that are common to human history. And I believe he does this because people have a tendency to latch on to events and to point to the coming of Jesus. There's a war in Ukraine. This must be the end. Hurricane Ian, this must be the end. Churches are deceived on nationwide levels. This must be the end. These things are the beginning. I would say they are the lead up to the end. In verses 4 and 5, deceivers will mislead. I'll tell you, if you could put a price on discernment, it would be one of the most valuable commodities on the market today. Jesus is going to come back to deception and misleading multiple times in this chapter. There is a lack of discernment that exists in churches in abundance today. It exists both in the the church and in the culture. Now, our concern is the church. We should not be surprised, nor should we entertain any expectation for the world. We're not surprised that the world would be lacking discernment. But when it comes to Jesus, you and I, we must not be deceived. That's the warning Jesus gives in verse 4. See to it that no one misleads you. How is one misled? A failure to exercise discernment. All we need to do to be misled is to fail to exercise discernment. The best-selling authors, they must be right because they're best-sellers. Large churches must represent Christ because they're so big. That's a sign of God's blessing. New Bible teachings must be taught. They're connecting with the culture. Long-time pastors must speak truth. They've been doing it so long. New pastors must be followed because they're relevant and a little hip. You see, deception, I believe, is going to accelerate, and it's going to build. It's going to quicken. As the end approaches, it's going to move faster. 
But biblical discernment, what you and I are after, that protects us. That protects us from deception. Deception will quicken as the end nears. Jesus says in verse 6, there will be wars and rumors of wars. In the book, Lessons of History, Will Durant writes, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. That means that the world has been without war about 8% of the time. Verse 7 captures something of this increase in war. Nations probably refers to countries warring against, against one another. Kingdoms probably refers to alliances or coalitions. Think in terms of global world wars. And I believe at the end of verse 6, Jesus makes a statement that ought to apply to this entire section as we get into it. See that you are not frightened. These things must take place but it's not yet the end. Jesus says, don't worry. As catastrophes grow, as calamity multiplies, God remains sovereign. And these things that are happening in the world around us, it's almost as though they have to happen to bring about the end. And if you don't know that God's in control, all of it can be really scary. In verse 7, famines will ramp up. Famines happen by crop failure, by population issues, by government policies. Earthquakes happen constantly. I read in one place up to 50 happen worldwide a day. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. As a pregnant woman's birth pains increase near delivery, so do the world catastrophes as the end approaches. Birth pains, again, they signify the end of a pregnancy. Infrequent at first, they accelerate as the birth nears. And to be fair, there's some interpreters that look at verses 4 and 8, and they place this, these verses in the end or in the tribulation. We'll get to that in a moment. And it even fits really well with Revelation chapter 6, which details the events of the tribulation. They line up quite nicely. But again, I think the description of verse 8 puts these events prior to the end, leading up to the arrival of the end, which is where we go next in verses 9 through 26. It's the arrival of the end. Remember the question Jesus answers. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Here it is. This is the sign. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. All right, big picture. Stay with me here. When we wrap our arms around what all of the Bible teaches us about end times events, we discover five big end times events. Something called the rapture, followed by a great tribulation, followed by the return of Jesus Christ, 
followed by a millennial kingdom, and then a new heaven and new earth. Those are the big five events. The rapture is a visible, physical appearance of Jesus. He is going to deliver his people into heaven. The great tribulation then follows. That's a literal seven-year pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. The return of Jesus, he'll come and he will undo and defeat all that Satan and someone called the Antichrist have done during the tribulation. He will then establish his millennial kingdom. You hear the word millennial. It's a 1,000-year reign upon the earth and then usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Again, with respect to our brothers and sisters, not everybody agrees with all those events or the timing of that, but I believe that's the Bible's teaching on it. And I think that verse 9 is the start of the great tribulation. This is a sign of the end of the age. In the great tribulation, through multiple judgments, our Lord is going to pour out his just and holy wrath upon a fallen and wicked world. It's recorded briefly in Daniel and unpacked and expanded in Revelation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He, the Antichrist or the world ruler, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That's a worldwide peace. In the middle of that seven, half of seven is three and a half. In the middle of three and a half years or in the middle of seven years at three and a half, he'll put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And again, in this great tribulation, a temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem with sacrifices ongoing. And at the temple, he, or the Antichrist, will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, if that's the first time you heard that, or it sounds confusing, don't worry. I just want you to see that all of this is going to fit together and that Jesus is going to fill this in in a moment. Jesus is going to provide us, in Matthew 24, with a structure or with an outline, if you will, using the word tribulation. In verse 9, following the beginning of birth pangs, then, then they will deliver you to tribulation. Not just in a general sense, though we can all experience tribulations, it is true, but this is to the great tribulation. Verse 10 also marks time, at that time, or at that time they will do that. Verse 21, things ramp up. Again, following how he uses this word, for then there will be a great tribulation. That's going to be halfway through, three and a half years. We're going to see that in a moment. And in verse 29, one more marker of time, but immediately after the tribulation. Jesus will then answer the question of his return in that passage. But in verses 9 through 14, the great tribulation begins. Jesus summarizes the events. There's going to be martyrdom, persecution, betrayal, division. In verse 11, we see, again, that deception or that misleading. It's emphasized one more time. There's a lawlessness that's running rampant. And what Jesus offers in summary, John, in the book of Revelation, gives us in detail. The book of Revelation is a vision that Jesus gives to John. It is what is to come. 
and chapters 6 through 9 will describe the judgment of God upon this world. Death by sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. A worldwide geographical shift from a massive earthquake. A partial collapse of the solar system. The poisoning of drinking water. The release of beings from hell that cause torment but do not permit death. We read of them at the outset. You know, there's been times in human history when it's been miserable to live on the face of the earth. None will be worse than this. Yet, yet, the gospel will be preached. Notice that in verse 10. Though the righteous wrath of God is poured out upon a world deserving it, so too is the mercy of God evident globally. The mercy of God remains for all who come to him through Jesus Christ. History also offers that the greatest gospel growth has come through the hardest trials and tribulations. And this will be the great tribulation. But things get worse. Remember, this is going to be a seven-year tribulation. I shared with you the first half. The second half, what happens there is unspeakable. Beginning in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not get back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or, or there, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. In verse 15, Jesus goes back to Old Testament Daniel. We read earlier of an individual, someone we'll call the Antichrist. This man is a phenomenal ruler. He's a maker of peace. He can bring about worldwide peace, peace with Israel, and he will be a friend to the Jewish people. But halfway through those seven years, three and a half years, the mask comes off. He's going to break the peace agreement that he's made with them. The Jews will see him for who he really is. To read Daniel one more time, in the middle of the seven, in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he, the Antichrist, will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation, locating him in the holy place. Now, so significant is this event that Matthew, as he's penning this gospel, 
puts in parentheses, let the reader understand. Matthew says to those listening, to those reading, wake up, pay attention. I believe that verse 15 has two fulfillments. I believe it's already happened one time. Fulfillment number one took place before Jesus taught this. It was a partial fulfillment made after Daniel predicted it. In 167 BC, before the Romans ruled Israel, a man named Antiochus IV, he was a Syrian ruler, he came to the temple. And he took a pig, which is forbidden by the Jews, and offered it at the temple. He then erected an altar to Zeus and offered up burnt offering. He then forced the priest to eat the meat of the pig. He made circumcision illegal. He burned copies of the Bible. He even named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. That's a complete desecration of all that God deems holy. But I believe there's at least a second fulfillment, and this is what Jesus speaks of. It's future. It's yet to come. I believe that the, the meaning of verse 15 reaches its complete and its fullest meaning in the temple by an individual known as the Antichrist. He's also known in Scripture as the beast. Revelation chapter 13, verses 2 and 6 record this. And the dragon, or Satan, gave him, the beast or the Antichrist, the power in his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who was like the beast and who was able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. You see, I believe in verse 15, Jesus is speaking of an event that is also yet to come. That Revelation 13 details that event, that there is a day coming when that Antichrist or that figure will set himself up and he will receive worship and promote worship both to himself and then pointing to Satan. And in all of this, Jesus is emphasizing an urgency. In verses 16 and 20, the Lord's calling for a complete evacuation. I mean, I think that the, the, the Jewish people are largely in mind as Jesus is teaching this. There's a few reasons for that. In verse 15, again, Jesus is focusing on Daniel. In verse 16, see, he speaks of Judea. And then again, in verse 20, he speaks of a Sabbath. And what he says to them is, listen, don't write out the storm. Don't think you can just get through this. Whatever the Nazis had, whatever contempt they felt for the Jewish people, it's going to be multiplied ten times over by this Antichrist. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. One question you and I might ask is what about us? Where are we in all of this? Will we experience this? Well, I don't believe that we will. Again, going back to the, to the big picture of the end times events, those five big events, I discussed something called the rapture event. I recorded 1 Thessalonians 4 and again in 1 Corinthians 15. I believe that Jesus will rapture his people up to the heavens before the great tribulation. 
And I believe that because the great tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. God's wrath against you has been dealt with at the cross. You will not experience the wrath of God. So the church age and the church is is another topic altogether. Jesus isn't focusing his discussion on that. Um, Here in this account again in Matthew 24, he's answering the question of the disciples. And we know that as we read Scripture, that when a certain theme or topic comes up, the speaker or the author doesn't necessarily need to give you every piece of data that could concern that. I just think about how impossible it would be to live if you lived that way. If you're trying to communicate a recipe to a friend and you're telling them how the stove works, where to buy their groceries, I mean, the list goes on. We just simply don't live life that way. The Bible isn't recorded that way either. So there's reasons that the rapture isn't in this passage. There's reasons that the millennial kingdom isn't here or the, the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus sets out to answer the question of the disciples. And he's taught them, taught us, that the great tribulation is going to be this time of unprecedented suffering. And then Christ returns. In verses 27 through 31, it's the advent of the return. Jesus answers the question, what will be the sign of your coming? Verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. I'd like to try to summarize this and give you three elements of the return of Jesus. The first is speed. And to express the speed of his coming, Jesus selects lightning. He speaks of lightning. Lightning travels at the speed of light good. I wasn't sure if people would get that. At least as far as the flashes go that you and I see, 186,000 miles per second. And verse 27 reveals, in a great illustration, just a, a sudden and immediate appearance of Jesus. Maybe it's even teaching us about his speedy arrival and, and even a brightness to his coming. Verse 30 describes a great glory. The second element of his coming is his visibility. Somehow, the arrival of Jesus will be visible to everyone. Verse 30, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Now, I don't know how God's going to do this. You and I know that at any given time, we could stand outside and see so many miles in either direction and so many miles up in the sky, and that's about it. Somehow everyone will will see the return of Jesus. I assure you, this will not be a secret. Verse 29 gives us what I would call a sort of weather report following the Great Tribulation. Uh, Remember, this is after seven years of tribulation. The earth is a complete wasteland at this point. 
And it may even be that the condition of the world may, may, may help to, to magnify the return of Jesus simply because of the condition that it's in. Verse 28 might fall under this point, this idea of visibility. That's an unusual saying. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, you can know where there's a dead carcass because of the vultures circling above. Looking up reveals the location of that carcass. So some believe that verse 28 indicates that that the final judgment of Jesus has come for those who are spiritually dead. The bottom line is that the return of Jesus, this is not going to be an emotionless event for anyone. Every single person will be stirred. And in our account, some will be stirred to celebration, and some will be stirred to mourning. In verse 31, those who came to faith during the tribulation are going to be gathered together from one end of the globe to the other. God, during this time, has redeemed a people. These people were not misled. They rejected the false prophets. They endured to the end. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom was preached, and they believed. How sweet it will be for all they've experienced and witnessed to be gathered together by God's angels to Christ. In verse 30, the tribes of the earth will mourn. Here are a people who are coming to some very disturbing realities. Jesus is no myth. Jesus is not a crutch. Jesus is everything God's Word says He is. God's Word is truth. These people have realized at this point that Jesus is not just one God among many. That Jesus is more than a person, more than a prophet, more than a teacher. Those who have survived the tribulation are going to look to the sky and they are going to drip a sweat of dread. They're going to be reduced by horror as tears roll down their numb cheeks. They'll be inconsolable and despondent. The only companion for them will be their own mind, and it'll be reviewing on loop over and over, I did not follow Christ. Paul writes that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you do not know God... And if you do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you will go to hell when you die. If you turn from your sin and you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. You will be completely forgiven of your sins and loved by God for eternity with Jesus in heaven. But we must mention just one final element in this return. Remember, the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your coming? In verse 30, Jesus says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And of course, there have been many theories offered as to what this sign might be. Some point to the Shekinah glory of God from the Old Testament. 
Some people speak of the New Jerusalem or even the lightning of verse 27. Someone believes it's an enormous blazing cross. Others believe probably quite simply that it's Jesus himself. Looking up and seeing the Lord's appearance, that is the sign. In other words, you will know the sign of my coming when you see me appear in the sky. Well, there's more to say about this as we go on next time, but for now, this is a good time to close. The point being, in the great tribulation, the Lord is going to judge this world. And in that great tribulation, that judgment's going to be cataclysmic, it's going to be just or righteous, and it's going to be completely sweeping. Jesus will return, and you will be with him. And I was thinking about the eve of his arrest in John chapter 14, and the disciples, their world's going to be upended by the disturbing news that they just heard. The great tribulation is disturbing news for you and I as we think about people we love and the world around us and the end that's to come. It's hard to accept, yet we know it's just. I think what he said to them that evening is a wonderful reminder for you and I in light of the days in which we live. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come and bring you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are heartened by your words. Thank you for your teaching on the end, on your return. Thank you for words of comfort for our own hearts. I do pray for us, Lord, that you would grant us a grace to understand what is to come, that you would grant us a grace to live in light of that, to think soberly about our days and to number them carefully. We do pray with John and with others from the Bible that you would return and that you would come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen.